Okay, so I looked ahead uh-huh. at season 17, <laughs> and I made a third column. Ooh. I thought, I popped it in there with just like some random ideas, because uh-huh. I thought, you know how sometimes you get to a week, and the research is either too hard or there's not enough? Yes. I was like, let me just pop some people in here, Love and idea. then we can pull from this other list if things are getting wild. Yes. I think that's a great idea. Because we are on the final season or the final oh, episode. Not final no, season. not final season. We're not shutting down the not pod. In the ta- towel, towel, no, towel, towel. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We still got we still got some fire in us. Yes, we're still going. And yes. the women, they just keep popping out of the thin air. <laughs> Can you believe it? So many. I, I honestly like we did that book interview tonight and it was a woman who like never heard of her. I've n- I, and you have every single year, like, you know, a couple times a year. I look up. Famous women. <laughs> she has never once popped up. I and couldn't like, believe it. Famous women I've never heard of. Yeah. Famous women from this continent. Famous yeah. women from this time in history. Like, I have typed in every search, um, like, combination. Never seen this woman's name. Never seen her. So, there's still so many out there. Um, but either way, we're finishing off this season with a bang. It's going to be really fun because we're talking about, I believe, a nun, correct? Oh, yeah. And... The daughter of a pope. <laughs> That's crazy. I didn't know popes had daughters. They normally don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Yes. Um, but if you didn't know, you're listening to Herstory. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. Nope, not in the least. (laughs) Um, But we do Google these women and we... watch a lot of YouTube videos, and sometimes we get facts wrong. I am doing like a pretty contentious person tonight, so I'm excited to get people's opinion on her because she's one of the most, like like a very famous like villain in history. I've never and heard of her. <laughs> um, and I had to go pretty deep, too, because the things that I found were not uh, very informative. <laughs> so I had to find some other sources to make it happen. Perfect. Uh, but we know that you're busy. I mean, if you live in Maryland, you're shoveling your walk. <laughs> you live in a lot of places in America. In places. You're shoveling right now. Um, so you have your headphones in. You're shoveling away. And you have your gloves on. So you can't look at your phone. No. No. Like. So we are going to describe them. We're going to get a little physical. Physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Sister Mary Kenneth Keller. And she has like a squarish face with a little tiny bit of a hooked nose and like the big cheekbones that make her have like puffy Mm -hmm. cheeks. In most pictures, she is wearing her nun, whatever you call it, veil, habit, wimple. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she's from the mid 1900s. So it's like a very traditional black and white, Mm -hmm. what you would picture. In a few photos, especially later in life, she's not wearing her veil anymore. Um, and she just had white hair pulled back of the time. But no matter what, she always has a slight smirk on her face. Okay. Just like a little bit. So little that unless you're looking for it, it's barely there. Perfect. So who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Lucrezia Borgia. Uh, Lucrezia was one of the most beautiful women of her generation. Shut so it. She was born in the Italian Renaissance and... You know how we just did that book, How to Be a Renaissance Woman? Yeah. She is the typical beautiful Renaissance woman. So much so that, like, a lot of Renaissance paintings are, like, 
correctly or incorrectly attributed to like being based on her. <laughs> Shush! <laughs> she has long, like golden wavy hair, plump skin, rosy cheeks. Um, she has quote a smile that lit up her face in a thousand different ways. Never did such a gentle creature seem happier to be alive. But wow! Also, according to many people, there was a very sinister nature behind her beautiful looks and she could be seen sneaking around parties and wearing a hollowed out ring to do poison into people's drinks <laughs> i want to do that i want to sneak around with a hollowed out ring so that's it beautiful woman with maybe some secrets maybe Ooh. not so we're gonna get into it <laughs> this is so fun and this is a the last episode of our request season yes and avery bray recommended this person to us we were just talking about we you were. in the kitchen <laughs> uh thank you for being such a long time listener I know. and again introducing us to a core of thorns and roses yeah like telling us to do farah mm -hmm. being a writer yourself amazing listening to all of our weird podcasts we appreciate you yes. and your comments and your likes and your loves yes and just so many good requests and this one was really fantastic um okay do you want to know what you're about to drink i do it's so <laughs> cute it's so cute so this is called pick your poison and it is gin blueberry liqueur ginger liqueur pineapple juice and you shake that all up pour it into a martini glass and then you pipe onto the cocktail meringue and then you torch the top of the meringue. This is my first meringue ever. I can't believe I get to have this. I know. I'm so, cheers. feeling really proud. I'm trying to not <laughs> knock the mic over. Cheers. It's going to be sticky. I know it's hard to get to the actual cocktail. It's good, though. <laughs> it's I'm going to munch. I'm just going to be chewing on the meringue the whole time. We should have brought back spoons. Mm-hmm. I think it's good. I can't tell. I, I think it's good. Um, it's a little bit tart, mm -hmm. um, especially mm -hmm. on the tail end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You guys like listening to this? You like listening to us swallow and chew on meringue? Um, I'm impressed with this meringue. Thank you. Tastes professional. The is definitely the best part. I don't know about the base <laughs> cocktail as much. I like I it. That part is okay. <laughs> what are you going to do? What am I going to do? The lemon juice would have fixed it all. Probably. I forgot to put the lemon juice in. <laughs> okay. mm. So what do you know about Lucretia Borgia? I don't know anything about her. I feel like this is my new MO now. Mm -hmm. I'm the women's history podcaster that knows nothing about women in history. That's how I feel now. Every week, I'm like, I'm an idiot. Like I've never heard of this person. Yeah, I just, I, I used to know every week something about the woman. <laughs> now I feel at a total loss. Yeah, we're getting into the nitty gritty, everybody. And it's good. Down and dirty. Um, and you know what's funny? Sister told me that, like, she used to, when she first started listening to our podcast years ago, because now she's listened to every episode, that she would go through and look for the ones with women that she knew, mm -hmm. and she enjoyed listening to those. But then if they were paired with somebody that she didn't know, she found that she really liked those. Mm -hmm. And she went back and was like, oh, I really do like listening to these <laughs> things about women that I've never heard of. Do you know what I mean? I would do yeah. the same thing. Oh, like, I would totally, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in this woman, but not a random woman named Mary Kenneth Keller. <laughs> but now I'm interested, except for that was my first cat's name. So. Oh, that's true. Keller. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Tell me all <laughs> about her. So I got most of this from the Criminalia podcast, a biographies YouTube channel, and Wikipedia. So shout out to my sources. Thank you so much. 
Um, but I do, again, want to give a footnote because there are so many conflicting feelings about this person. Mm. Um, so let's get into it. Lucrezia Borgia was born on April 18th, 1480, near Rome in the midst of the Italian Renaissance. Her mother was Venocia de Catane. De Catane. I'm sorry. These are also going to be Italian names that I'm going to butcher. Good job. Um, Tear them up. She was a concubine, and her father was Cardinal Rodrigo de Borgia, who would later be known as Pope Alexander VI. <laughs> so for continuity's sake, we'll just call him Alexander, because that's how everybody refers to him. Her early memories of her father were of a warm, affectionate man who would make frequent visits to his mother's house, which made sense because she was his favorite mistress. And the couple actually did have other children together. So she had two older brothers, um, both of the same pairing, Venozia and um, Alexander. But Alexander, when Lucrezia was, born, Lucrezia was born, had hired some astronomers to come in and read the stars to tell her fortune. We don't know exactly what they said, but apparently it was all good things. Okay. <laughs> call, she's going to be very powerful. Call Don Bain and yeah. see if he had the stars read when I was born. <laughs> That's what we need to know. Please. And when Lucrezia was three years old, her and her brothers were all taken from their mother to be educated by Adriano Orsini de Milan, um, her uncle in the Piazza Pizzo de Merlo. So this was a building adjacent to her father's house. So this was happening because if they, and I don't know if her, maybe her brothers were transported before. I was kind of unclear about that. But if they remained with their mother for too long, they would remain illegitimate. But if Alexander took over, then he could claim them as his own. So Lucrezia had an intense love for her father, but some historians think that this early separation from her mother left a mark on her because it was kind of like she had the best of both worlds when she was a kid. She was like, I love my dad. I love my mom. I'm here. And then all of a sudden it was like, I never see my mom ever. <laughs> like, I don't see her anymore. Yeah. Like, it was kind of, it was a lot for her. I imagine. I mean, it's a lot for kids now, you know, when yeah. we can text and call and FaceTime. I can't imagine, I can imagine it being way harder when you're like full separation. But also, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. th was this common for Cardinals to have? Apparently, yes. Okay. Right? Like, it was, like, this is something I found very interesting because some of the historians were saying that it was, kind of encouraged mm. for them to just like have these affairs be open with them and like that was that like a live-in lover yeah okay which, frankly you know because a lot of people pointed out like the problems with some of the sexual abuse in the catholic church like is because they're not allowed to like just like have spouses and stuff right like, and obviously there are many more reasons why it's happening but like right you know maybe this was like a good solution of like oh yeah we have mistresses and like we're not like it kind of seemed like the sex wasn't the problem. It was the marriage, mm. which is very mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. So I'm not a religious historian, so I don't know if anything I'm saying is. Well, <laughs> so correct, you said but... she was born 1480. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, that is like the Middle Ages had ended in like the early 1400s. And that's when like the Holy Roman Empire was like a big deal. And then the Renaissance moved the focus to science. So I wonder if there was just like less of a spotlight on the church and they could kind of do what they want. Or it was the leftover remnants of being in charge yeah, during the Holy Roman Empire. Like that would be my take on it. It's one of the two. Because yeah. mm -hmm. during the Renaissance, people lost a lot of faith in the church and the church mm -hmm. lost a lot of power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a lot of things going on, but yeah, like everybody, like, and he was very vocal about like, 
these being his children, like everybody knew who her mother was. Like, I love a guy that claims his babies. Yeah. Claim them up. Exactly. Except don't take them from the mom for no reason. That's yeah. stupid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> but so like some people like, you know, there was a definitely like a hole where her mother was. Um, but she was certainly not lacking for any parental affection. It was well known that Alexander loved all of his children, but Lucrezia was his favorite. Only girl? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, yep. of course. So of relate. course. Uh, well, no, you're not the only girl, but you are your dad's I'm favorite. the best girl. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Marjorie. <laughs> um, and Lucrezia was also unique because she had a world-class education. Her uncle tutored her, and she also received an education in a convent. And kind of like at court as well, where humanities were emphasized, which made her a real good like critical thinker. Um, she would become proficient in the lute, in poetry, in oration. She could speak many languages, including Latin, Greek, Spanish, Catalan, Italian, and French. Um, but unfortunately, she was still a woman of the Renaissance, beholden to the traditions of her society. So when she was just 11 years old, she was betrothed to a man that she had never met. No. 11. So a matrimonial arrangement was drawn up between Lucrezia and the Lord of Valdiora in the kingdom of Valencia. Uh, his name was Don Cherubino Joan de Centelle. I'm sure that's how it's pronounced, too. I, I honestly, I wrote, I did my research all on Monday and uh-huh. I haven't looked at it since. Sometimes I write down like a random pronunciation guys in my research. Like yeah, I, I should, I, sometimes I do that and I just, um, I haven't looked at it since. No, Monday, so you have a better, that. you have a better understanding of phonics than I do. So when you go on the fly, you've got it. I like, I, don't know. I can't physically sound out words unless I practice a lot. Well, I know I'm butchering all this. So that's okay. Um, I think if it were spanish I, like italian italian's is, very italian hard hard um well because some of it is so close to spanish and portuguese and yes. some of it is not exactly and you're like wow where'd that come yeah, from some matter. how many you know stanley tucci episodes of <laughs> searching for italy i watch um <laughs> never know that's how you that's so. how you know you're italian <laughs> so but this first engagement was broken off and then she was betrothed again to a different older man she didn't know this was Don Gaspare Aversa, the Count of Procida. But this would also not last long. This marriage or, you know, agreement to be married, I couldn't get a clear answer on this, was annulled within two months because the Borgia family's place in society had suddenly changed when Alexander was named the new pope. So she's betrothed, and then she's, that's canceled, betrothed again. And then this time it's canceled because he's like, oh, I'm the Pope now. I can make a much more advantageous marriage for my daughter. I can, like, build you up way higher. Exactly. He's like, it's like the scope of suitors was much wider than it was, like, just a week ago. So he saw an opportunity to make a better match and give the family more political power. So Italy at this time was not the unified country we think of as as today. It was a loose confederation of city-states that were constantly fighting each other. So as soon as he came into this position of power, he was like, oh, I think I need to shop around a little bit for a son-in-law because <laughs> I have a chance to align with like a whole region of Italy, like not just another powerful family mm-hmm. in Rome. And he did find a more politically advantageous match two years later. So when she was 13 years old, she was betrothed to a man more than twice her age, Giovanni Sforza, a member of the House of Sforza who was Lord of Pesaro and titled Count 
of Potiniola. When our kids get married, <laughs> do you think that I can say they're part of the house of Greenwood? No. That's all I want. <laughs> <laughs> it's all I want. <laughs> I will never be a landlord, god damn it. I, I think the closest thing we have to it is the Kennedys. Yeah. And like the Roosevelts. Oh yeah, and the Roosevelts. Because they had like we the- call it like the House of Roosevelt. You call it Hyde Place. <laughs> and like Oyster Bay. Wasn't yeah. that the other one? The Oyster, <laughs> Oyster Bay, Bay yeah. Roosevelt's and the Hyde. Yeah. Okay. But I just like, okay. So they do it with fashion now. The house of something. Yeah. I but, could see you being like now, like the Greenwoods of Catonsville. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the Roosevelt of Hyde Park. Like, <laughs> I think you could do it. You can make it happen. It's not going to happen. I just wish. I wish. wish. I have to start ho- hosting like open houses and shit. That's true. When I'm done. But that's true. Fixing the house. Oh, I don't care about stress. Have I ever, has stress ever bothered me? Well, it does bother me, but. So, this guy, Giovanni, he was described as a man who possessed few talents and even less charm. But his connections to his powerful family in northern Italy meant that he was going to bring a lot of political opportunities with him. So, on June 12th, 1493, the two were married in the Vatican with all the pomp and circumstance that might accompany a royal marriage. Like, she was so high up in society. Like, some people called her a princess because at this point, Alexander was kind of tre- treating the papacy like as, he, like as if he were a king. Well, the papal states were a part of Italy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that. So he kind of is in charge of like a big oh, yeah. chunk of land. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So like some people like kind of make, like they'll call her a princess. Okay. Um, so once the ceremony was over, her father as was custom, followed them into the bridal chamber to make sure that the marriage was consummated. Wowza. Hate that. And she's 13. Now, like, I know that this was customary, but, like, family members were, you know, almost always present the night of the wedding, but this act would take on a more sinister meaning soon to the public. So after the wedding, Lucrezia and her father remained very close, and some in the community saw it as unnaturally close. And rumors started to swirl that there was an incestuous relationship between the two. Yikes. There were also rumors that she was having a sexual relationship with her brother. Now, I personally don't think this is true. This is fitter fodder. This wasn't even mentioned on the Wikipedia page. Wow. And they love gossip. They love gossip. (laughs) And according to Criminelli, the podcast, they were like, we look, there is zero evidence of this actually going on. But it gives you a good sense into how people saw the Borgia family, for one, and women who are increasing their own power in society. Anytime you want to criminalize a woman, you say she's involved in incest uh-huh. or witchcraft. Uh-huh. Those are the things. Yeah, exactly. So I just hope that she, pref- like, in my mind, I was like, she probably just preferred to spend time with her dad because, like, there was no passion between her and Giovanni. And she's 13. Like, she's 13. She, like, her dad is, like, Typically very nice to her, except for marrying her off a bunch of times. Um, and Giovanni would leave all the time to go on business trips outside of Rome. So, like, what's she supposed to do? Just sit in her house all day? Like, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with my dad and my brothers. Like, I'm going to go do something. Like, <laughs> they were. It was fine two months ago before she was married, right. and now it's crazy. <laughs> so, but this will not be the last of the rumors. Um, it turns out, however, that Lucrezia would not be married to Giovanni for too long. Alexander was not getting as much out from his son-in-law as he wanted. So she, um, so he and Lucrezia's brother found a new husband for her 
And they attempted to get the marriage annulled. Very Henry VIII of them. People were like, well, you can't really get it annulled because you saw the consummation happen. Like, you were literally in the room. You vouched for it. And she's six months pregnant. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So she's not the Virgin Mary. No. So there's something going on here. To which Alexander said, oh, that? He goes, no. That's an affair. (laughs) That's an affair, baby. Um, And he goes, and I thought they were having sex, but, you know, there was a sheet involved, so I couldn't really (laughs) see anything. And he said, also, my son-in-law is definitely impotent. So, you know. He's just making things up. This poor guy is being slandered about town. Giovanni is pissed about this accusation against his manhood, so he goes on the offensive. And he goes, well, I want a public trial. You know, I want to prove that I can get a boner in front of everyone. Yes. But that didn't happen. So So then his next offensive move where he was like, well, I know for a fact that she's having sex with her brother and her father. So that's really where like a lot of the heat came from the rumors, which like. Obviously, like, her dad is spreading rumors about him. So, like, now he's spreading rumors about that. It's, like, so dirty. <laughs> um, but soon he realized that if he didn't grant the annulment, they would probably kill him. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he signed a paper agreeing that he was impotent and he fled Rome. <laughs> wow. Now, as far as the baby not being his, that may actually be true. We know that he wasn't home very often, and there's evidence that she was having an affair with Alexander's Chamberlain, Pedro Calderon, also called Peroto. He sounds hot. He does sound hot. So while she's pregnant and waiting for her marriage to be annulled, she does get sent away to a convent to give birth. She names the baby Giovanni, but he didn't really get introduced to the public until he was three years old. And I like, he was never mentioned in the story again. (laughs) So I don't know. Like, some people say that he died in infancy. Some say that he was, like, adopted out. I don't really know. Um, That was a little confusing to me. But anyways, time for husband number two. Lucrezia was then married to the Neapolitan Alfonso of Aragon, the half-brother of Sancha of Aragon, who was the wife of Lucrezia's brother, Geoffrey Borgia. There's a lot of titles, a lot of things going on that I copy and pasted from Wikipedia. This sounds so much like Isabella of Castile and like all the different little lands in Spain Yep, Mm -hmm. that like everybody had something going on. Exactly. So um, they were married in 1498, making Lucrezia the Duchess Consort of (laughs) Bichelge. Good. That was good. Bichelge. I'm trying to think as I know... Bajol, and this is spelled kind of similar. Bajol, I don't know. Whatever. And she's also <laughs> the princess consort of Salerno. And then she, not her husband, was named governor of Spoleto in 1499. So she's a governor. Nice. Charge of a region. Does she wear like a suit jacket with a lapel? I hope. I hope. And in a very nice twist, this husband is young. He's handsome. He's nice. People describe the moment they met as being similar to a thunderbolt. It uh, was love at first sight, which we love for Lucrezia. Get out of here. That. Get out of here. I like that a lot. Um, and within six months, she was pregnant with their first child. So she was absolutely devastated when her father and brother came to her again and were like, sorry, but this one's also not going to work out for you. 
we need to end this marriage as well. And since they had already played their annulment card and barely gotten away for it. Did they kill him? Did they kill him? Yes, they did. (gasps) No! An assassination was in the cards this time. But Lucrezia, Lucrezia, she cared for Alfonso. So she begged her father not to do this. And she went to him and she was like, this is what's going on. They are going to murder you. Like, you have to get out of town. So he did as she told, and he survived the first assassination attempt. The two were reunited shortly after, and she gave birth to their son, Rodrigo. But unfortunately, they caught up to him again. He was first ambushed by two men disguised as pilgrims on the steps of St. Peter's Cathedral. He had a deep gash wound to his neck from a sword, and he was nearly dead when he was taken to the Vatican to recover. But he was still, like barely clinging on to his life so his throat is slit by a sword by a sword gushing blood gushing blood and he somehow survives like in in this this happened in saint peter in saint peter's Peter's cathedral cathedral yes so like where edward and bella were running towards each other (laughs) okay got it lucrezia fainted at the sight of him and kept at his side day and night to care for him and miraculously he starts to recover no then six weeks later someone comes back to finish the job well he's and still bedridden this is annoying strangled him <gasps> after like can you imagine being strangled and like your throat is just starting to heal from a fucking stab i would just give up it's, uh, it's time for me to go awful it was now 1500 and she was 20 years old and she is devastated this is like she's turning into kissing kate barlow yeah yeah (laughs) yes he's such a good twist you know the american west Um, that's where she goes (laughs) but i mean she was so just depressed about this like to a point where a friend of hers wrote a poem about her grief because it was so And I think it made matters worse to know that the culprits were her own family. Whom she she loves. And she loves them. And at this point, she's like, well, what am I going to do now? I lost my husband. I can't lose my family as well. So she just fell in line. Yeah. And like, even though like she knew that it was fucked up. Because frankly... The Borgias had always been fucked up. Mm. So one thing you need to know about the Borgia family is that this had been their M.O. since the 1300s. They were a very Game of Thrones family. So politically ruthless that they had no issues with killing people who were in the way and paying to be at the top. In fact, most people believe that that's how they ended up with having two popes in the family. It's a Lannister situation. Uh-huh. Um, they also weren't afraid to kill each other. I mean, in 1497, just a few years before this, Lucrezia's brother Juan was murdered, found dead in the river. And the reigning theory is that his own brother, Cesare, committed the act because he knew that Juan was the favored son. How do you do Christmas after this? I don't know. (laughs) Just like, gotcha, bring a knife, just stab somebody. So because Lucrezia is a Borgia, rumors start to spread that Lucrezia also liked to partake in the family intrigue. But her method of dealing with her enemies was poison. It poison. Is, poison. It is said that she had a ring with a chamber in it so she could easily slip poison into people's drinks at parties. 
Some say there was also a second ring with a small needle that she would dip in poison so she could casually stab them with it but not be openly seen wielding a weapon. She sounds like a James Bond villain. Mm. And she even apparently had her own recipe for the poison, a white powder called Cantarella. But some historians believe that this is actually not true. <laughs> People thought of her as sexually deviant, so she must also be totally morally corrupt. Mm. And at the time, poison was seen as a coward's way of killing someone because you could be smiling at them all night and know that they're going to be dead in a few hours. It was sneaky and therefore feminine. And even though we have no actual proof that she was doing this, Lucrezia, by the time she was 16, had ended up with the worst reputation in the Borgia family. Like, she had the worst reputation. And they're just beheading the boys. And they're killing people, <laughs> including their own family. And lying about the everything. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. So... Back to the current time period. At this point, she is 22, once an old, once forcibly widowed. (laughs) And her father and brother are irritated because they are like, oh, my gosh, are you still mourning him? (laughs) It's time to get going. (laughs) They must love their women. Yep. (laughs) I mean, to them, like she took two years to grieve and they're like, this is wasted time. (laughs) (laughs) Your beauty is fading, girl. (laughs) So in 1502, she was betrothed yet again to a man she had never met. He was another Alfonso, Alfonso d'Este, Duke of Ferrara, and son of the King of Naples. This was the most advantageous marriage yet, as the Ferrara family was one of the oldest and most influential families in Italy. Now you might ask, why then would they allow a twice-married woman with a reputation for murder into their family? Well, it's for fun. Papa Pope is blackmailing them into Mm. the marriage, which I'm sure made Lucrezia feel very welcome into the family. The Dieses were still apprehensive, so they sent a spy to the Vatican to see if the rumors about Lucrezia were true. And they reported that Lucrezia was a sweet, talented, wonderful woman. And like they are trying to find any reason to get her out of this marriage or get their son out of this marriage to her, and they're coming back with compliments about her. <laughs> that is why I don't believe the rumor. No. Like, I can't believe them. So this, along with the blackmail and a hefty dowry, meant that she was on her way to her third and final wedding. But this time, she entered this marriage with the realistic idea that it was going to be loveless, and that was fine. At least she was far away in northern Italy, and her family probably wouldn't intervene in this marriage because it was so high up. So she gets there, and it's everything she expected. It's a very cold marriage, nothing like she had with her second husband. Dieste uh, was known for having many affairs, mainly with sex workers, so he really didn't pay much attention to her, and neither did his relatives. And maybe this could have been bearable, but unfortunately she was forced to give up her infant son, Rodrigo, that she had with the man that she loved. And she was heartbroken about this. Yeah. Awful. So she decided that she was going to mend her own heart. If her husband could have a bunch of affairs, so could she. But rather than like a string of quick lovers like Dieste, she had a long and like she just had multiple long and beautiful romances. She had a very passionate affair with the court poet, a man named Pietro Bembo. 
Their love letters were deemed the prettiest love letters in the world by the famed romance poet Lord Byron. <gasps> Shut up! Uh-huh. He literally was reading them in like the records one time and said that. He's like, these are the most beautiful. This is the best thing I've ever read. Of life. course he would say that. <laughs> Lord Byron has been in so many of our stories. I know. Also, fun Sick side note. Some fun side note. Our um, friend, Joanne, who listens to the show, they when they moved to Pennsylvania from New York, all the streets in their neighborhood are named after famous authors. Really? And Lord Byron is one of the, <laughs> the names. So when we were walking around the neighborhood, I was like, he has been in so many Her Story on the Rocks <laughs> like episodes. This yeah, guy's a nut. And he's also like not a great person. <laughs> no, he isn't. Isn't he the one who like ha like named his daughter after his mistress with his wife? I think so. It was something crazy like that. Yeah, I'm like pretty positive. <laughs> um so some people say that this affair was platonic. I don't want to think that. No. I want to think that she was getting very satisfied on the emotional end and the physical end. People just love to think that like women, when they have affairs, mm-hmm. it's it's an emotional affair. Yeah. It's like, why does it have to be for her to be a good person? It exactly. doesn't. It doesn't. Men have affairs all the time. Now, maybe she was indeed having, like, this awesome emotional affair with this guy and loving every second of it. I don't know. But we know that she also enjoyed a long, very physical relationship with her brother-in-law, Francesco II, Gonzaga, Marquis of Mantua. So he had also married into the family. So he married Dieste's sister, Isabella. And this was a very sexual affair. But it ended when Francesco contracted syphilis. <laughs> Yikes. Like every man did. Uh-huh. So then a year and a half into her life in Ferrara, she discovered that her father had died. She, this is like another just like big blow. Because even though she had a complicated relationship with her family, she loved her father so much. And she was really distressed, but she hadn't seen him in so long. And he died right before he was supposed to visit. This also meant that Dieste had no real reason to stay married to her. And her life could be totally upended again. So she's kind of nervous at this point. She's like, am I going to have to marry another secret older stranger again? But he chose not to divorce her. It seemed that he had developed some kind of affection for her. I don't think they, you know loved each other at this point but they didn't hate each other and as time went on they grew to really care for each other they ended up being married for 17 years and having six children together whoa and even though she missed her children from her other marriage um and i think she was you know i think she was happy to have children around again and by all accounts she was a wonderful and doting mother Of course, since we are in the Renaissance era, six children also means a lot of miscarriages in between. And on June 14th, 1519, she gave birth to her 10th child. The entire pregnancy had been a rough one, and she had become very weak. She gave birth to a a sickly child who died the next day, and she herself fell very ill. She rallied for a couple of days, but then died on June 24th, 1519, at the age of 39. Oh, my God. Her life had so much. Dieste was by her side and fainted when she died. He wrote to a friend of his, I cannot write this without tears. 
knowing myself to be deprived of such a dear and sweet companion. For such her exemplary conduct in the tender love which existed between us. And when her death was announced to the region of Ferrara, the people wept. Like the people of Ferrara knew her as a kind and benevolent woman who cared for them. And this is really upsetting to me because when I embark on this story, the first thing you hear about her is that she was a sexual deviant. She poisoned people. She was having sex with her father, the Pope, like all these like really scandalous things. And I just like immediately believed them. She has been labeled as the most depraved woman in history. And I think that that should be changed to the most misunderstood woman in history. The direct reports of Lucrezia paint a picture of a wonderful woman who was desperate, like just desperate to be loved and to love someone else. You know, that's all she wanted. She was wrapped up in a family of ill repute and had her reputation dragged through the mud by misogynist men who couldn't stand a well-educated woman who knew her worth. Her life was overwhelmed by her brother and her father, and it took years before she could truly become her own person. So justice for Lucrezia, because she is still portrayed as a villain in many retellings of the Borgia story. She even appears as a villain in the Marvel Universe. In Avengers West Coast number 98, the demon Satanish resurrected Borgia as the supervillain Cyana. A nod for her reputation for poisoning people. Mm. And, you know, some try and portray her as a good girl gone bad, like the hit Showtime series The Borgias. But they all lean into the incest and poison because it makes for a better story. So I hope that this podcast helps her reputation get a little better. And if she did murder some people, they probably fucking deserved it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's it. That's the story of Lucrezia Borgia. That was so interesting. I've really never heard of her. Me neither. And she sounds like a treat. To, yeah. Like, she sounds like a mom. Like, yeah. she had six kids. She's just hanging out. She's 39, six kids, plus all the other pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Like, she was just ready to settle down. Yeah. I think so. Mm. So, yeah, there it is. <laughs> Let's go talk about right. another, like, benevolent woman. <laughs> Let's do it. We're back. With another story. Another <laughs> Weird cocktail. cocktail. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to really taste like. It up for the finale. <laughs> <laughs> Usually we have banger women for the finale. This time we decided to go crazy with the cocktails. <laughs> do you want to know what it is? I do. This is called Code Above the Rest. And it is in a blender. Tequila, some smoothie fruit. You can use strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries. I did like a mix. Pecan liqueur. Simple syrup and lime, mm. all blended. But then, after it's blended, you pour Aperol on top to float on top of the drink. Cheers! Cheers! This tastes great. It is really good. Mm. I can taste the tequila. Mm-hmm. I can taste the Aperol. Mm. I mm. I don't know if I'm getting the pecan liqueur a little bit. I think I am a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um. Wow. Is I don't taste the tequila as much. Mm-hmm. Well, it's I in think, there. Yeah. 
This is actually really good. I like it. Hmm. It's very fruity, but it's not like s- overly sweet or tart. I feel like I'm like eating like a European frozen dessert. Yeah. That's what I feel like. That's what it's you like. Mm-hmm, for like sure. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Tell me what you know about Mary Kenneth Keller. Nothing. Of course. <laughs> just like our last little segment. We know nothing. I John feel like Snow. you said she was a nun. Um, yeah. So that's really all I know. Right. <laughs> Let me tell you about my sources. So obviously I read Wikipedia first. Then there was this really cute YouTube series where they talk about um, the scientists, famous scientists from within the church called Science and Religion. Mm-hmm. So really cool series if you want to get into that. And then I found a scholarly article called The Legacy of Mary Kenneth Keller that gave me a lot of detailed information that I was lacking in a lot of other places. Mm -hmm. So, she was born Evelyn Marie Keller, obviously goes by sister Mary Kenneth Keller as her Catholic name that she took when um, she became a nun. She was born December 17th, 1913. 1913? Wow, not the year I thought we were going to be in. No, we're we're like, when did you think? I was just like, yeah, we're going to be, it's going to be like another like Middle Ages. No, this is like, this is like yesterday. (laughs) She's still alive. No, she's not. 110. She's not. (laughs) But. Her and I almost crossed paths <gasps> our lives. No. She made it to the 1980s. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant like legit. Oh, like, no. I thought you were going to be like, and she was guest speaking at Towson University. No, just our <laughs> lifespan. <laughs> just our life. Just our lifespan. That's crazy. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, we do our big Catholic state. So, yeah, presumably. <laughs> so her dad was John Adam Keller and her mom was Catholic Josephine Keller. Both parents only had an eighth grade graduation. Wait, and where was she? Where was this geographically? Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, also not where I was expecting to be. She's born in Ohio, but she spent most of her youth in Chicago. Mm. Mary grew up in a deeply religious family. They were Catholic, and she was interested in joining a religious order even in her teenage years. Like, this is something she always wanted to do. Her teachers said that she was an excellent student who excelled in English and journalism. She entered, like, Right after leaving high school, 19 years old, enters the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay. It's 1932. She spent three years there focusing on her spiritual development. After those three years, she took her vows. Um, so by 1935, she was a nun. Now, I'm using nun the way layman People use none. Technically, she was a religious sister because she wasn't cloistered. To be a nun, you have to like live with the nuns, I think. Yeah. And a religious sister is somebody who takes their vows, but's out in the world doing jobs and stuff. Oh, I had no idea. I learned that this week. Yeah. I didn't know that there were. I honestly didn't know that there was a thing in the Catholic Church where like you could be basically a nun, but not live in the convent. Mm hmm. This is very interesting to me. And that's what she was. Okay. A non-cloistered nun. Okay. Um, after taking her vows, she began her teaching career. So many nuns, many pe- religious sisters were sent out into the world. They were called, right, to an institution. She was assigned for the next 29 years to work in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools in Illinois and Iowa. 
at those times, sisters used to finish their own academic degree. So she had a religious degree, Mm -hmm. but she would finish her academic degree during the summer or in the evening. So not to interfere with their teaching. So they were still Mm -hmm. going to college, but they were teaching on like as their day job. Mm -hmm. Mary's double life as a student and teacher was more intense than most though. She was taking courses at three separate colleges to get as many credits as she could in her spare time because she, unlike many people doing this, wasn't just getting a degree in education. She got her bachelor's of science in mathematics in 1943 and then went on to continue her work to receive her master's in math and physics. Wow. So she is a very intelligent. Yeah. Wait, and who requested this? Oh, Rebecca Denauer. Rebecca. Fourth one of the season. Fantastic. I think I've done them all. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, Rebecca. Okay, cool. I forgot to ask that at the beginning. Yeah. Okay, great. I was thinking about it earlier, and then I was like, man, I've done a lot of Rebecca. Well, she sends a lot of requests. Yeah. That's why we love you. Mm-hmm. So she is being a high school math teacher on the west side of Chicago. She's in her mid-40s. And Sister Mary read the signs of the times. She's like, I have my bachelor's. I have my master's. But I'm going to enroll in Dartmouth College in New Hampshire um, because she wants to take a workshop on computer education. Oh, cool. She said, this is what's, uh, this is the 50s. <gasps> no. And she's, she's going, I really think computers are going to be the new thing. We all need to learn this because if we don't, like the kids need to learn it. Teachers need to learn it. Wow. And it's like, again, I have no idea what time period I'm in with this story. I don't know why. Like, I can't, like, ground myself in a time period. <laughs> 1950s is where we are currently. We're in the 50s. She was born in 1913, but she's, like, 40 years old, mm-hmm. been teaching, getting her degrees, and yeah. now she's like, I'm going to go to Dartmouth and get my PhD in computer science. And, like, computers right now are literally filling rooms, entire, like, airport hang. Like, yeah. My husband's grandfather worked for like early IBM and took my father-in-law to see one of the first computers crazy and it was literally in an airport hangar mm-hmm. like it was so fucking big they're massive and it could do like basic equations mm-hmm. <laughs> like what our phones can do now like just the calculator app on oh phone, yeah oh that's yeah what they were doing like and they were crazy. like ticking for so long to get yeah. that done oh crazy she said I just went out to look at a computer one day and I never came back. It looked to me as if the computer would be the most revolutionary tool for doing math that I could get. She's like, I'm going to Dartmouth to study this thing because somebody's got to do it. Throughout Sister Mary's graduate studies, she was affiliated with various institutions, including the University of Michigan, Wisconsin, Purdue, and Dartmouth. She was the only female student in the computer science program at Dartmouth. Many sources claim that Mary began work at Dartmouth um, while they were making the language called basic. I don't. Some people say this is not true at all. She wasn't there. It was a different time, different coding. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of she's associated with coding because she was into computers before basic was a thing. So basic is the early basic in all capital letters was the early DOS, mm-hmm. which is like a computer coding thing for people 
who can't memorize zero one zero one 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 zero one. Like that's how people used to have to put together strings of code. And basic was the first time that like a normal person could learn how to code a computer. Right. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of in that time period. Okay. A couple of things to note. These are super, super early computers. Like you just said, this is post-World War II where they were using computers for like coding and radar. Mm -hmm. um, And like coding by like coding messages. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's learning computer science before computer science is a field. Which I think is important to note because she saw it coming. Yeah. She's at Dartmouth. She's studying all of these computer science classes. And the president of Clark College, which is a small women's college in Wisconsin, is like, hey, we really want to get ahead of the curve here. So she feels called to go here. um, And she goes to Wisconsin to complete her Ph.D. finally in computer science. She was given a one-year break from teaching middle and high schoolers to go do this. Um, her dissertation was called Inductive Inference on Computer-Generated Patterns, which is like early algorithm math. Her dissertation pretty much gives you the equation of like if you replace this number with this and this number with this situational number, you will get a future projected pattern, which was set aside for a lot of years, but is now a key piece to AI technology. No. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So her little equation is something that we use today to generate patterns. Upon her graduation from the PhD program, she was the first person in the U.S., possibly the world, to get a PhD in computer science. We aren't exactly sure because... Computer science wasn't a thing. The degree didn't have a name. So somebody else could have graduated in another country with a similar degree. Right. Um, And also, there is a man in the United States who graduated with his PhD in computer science on the same day as her. And they're both the central time zone. So we don't know who actually walked across the stage first. But it is possible that she's the first person in the world to earn a PhD in computer science. I mean, either way, gold or silver. Yo, cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> First or second place is pretty dope when it comes to this particular thing. It really is. I know. I know. Get me the pamphlet for the graduation. Wait, hold on. Well, what was his? Do, you, do we know his last name? So I don't know his name because I didn't write it down. But people have looked into the times and stuff, and they Ugh. just didn't keep records back then of like Dang. when the graduation ceremonies were. Yeah. You know, so it's like, ah. I was gonna say because I'm like, oh, if she was in alphabetical order, like yeah, a little ahead of him. Like, you know? Yeah, they just didn't keep. They didn't keep track. Um. So after 29 years of K to 12 teaching and 33 years of college level studies, Sister Mary was now 51 years old. Mary believed in the potential of computers and that they would increase the information age and promote education. She said, automation, or more precisely, cybernation, is a fact of our lives. It, its impact is swift and in many ways silent. Our sense of responsibility should make us wish to be informed and to inform our students. Furthermore, the computer can give a new dimension to the education we offer in the 60s people didn't even know what computers were that's crazy 
crazy. I know. And they were so complicated. Like they were using punch cards, yeah. you know, like to read code. Yeah. After finishing her doctorate in 1965, she was called as a woman of the religious order to finally go and spend her time at Clark College. This, again, is at Small Catholic Women's College. Mary, while there, founded and co-directed the computer science department of Clark College. And it was the first of its kind at a small university because computer science was only at the Ivy League schools at that point. Right. The same year, the National Science Foundation awarded her a grant of $25,000, which back then was a lot, payable over two years to incorporate equipment, computer equipment in this college for Mm -hmm. education. In addition, she kept up her research. She used computers to compare Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts of the Bible. She's like, let's look at these translations and see if they're actually accurate. She created and kept a small computer center at the college that was family-oriented that had a place where women could bring their children to play while they studied on the computers. It is. She continued to get new machines at the school all the time in this computer lab so that by 1982, she was in control of 21 Apple computers. In 1982. That's so cool. She had the, the original Macintoshes like sitting there on the desk that her computer lab had and other like huge colleges didn't. Mary was an advocate for the involvement of women in computer and the uses of computer in education. She was really an evangelist for computer science and determined that women graduating from college should be ready for the information age because computers weren't gendered yet. She was like, if we can get a lot of women graduating with this knowledge of computers and computer science and coding and using punch cards, then they can put their foothold in a career that is hasn't been grounded in a male male right. gender code. Mm-hmm. She helped to establish the Association of Small Computer Users in Education, which is still in use today, still an organization that meets. Apparently, she was a very witty and engaged people as she walked around the room. Like she was a v- loving and like vivacious teacher. She would get um, colleges to learn computer science constantly. This is coming. She loved Apple and went to IBM and was like, make personal computers. These huge mainframe networks are pointless. (laughs) She was like really upset about it. She was so pleased when she saw anyone using a new computer, a, a computer in a new way. She was like, what a great idea. This would be awesome. And um, her program by 1982 grew to have 51 students and 30 master's candidates. She went on to write four books all about matrix and patterns. And she wrote a ton of papers. But a lot of the reasons that we don't have her name is because her papers went by a lot of different names. Some were Sister Mary Kay Keller, Sister Mary Kenneth, Mary Kay Keller, Sister Mary Kenneth Keller. So when you do like a search for her papers, they're all kind of scattered. But they all have to do with algorithm and pattern matrices math. At a conference in 1975, Mary declared, we have not fully used a computer as the greatest interdisciplinary tool that has been invented to date. Like, we have to keep going. And she predicted the information boom at that college in the 70s. So she told us the 90s were coming. Like, the internet is going to hit, and we all have to be ready. And everybody's like, sure. <laughs> Nothing's going to change. Encyclopedias will never go out of <laughs> Right. Everybody keep buying them. 
She directed the department at Clark College for 20 years. And after she retired, they named the Science Center there oh, after her. That's so so Clark College now has the Keller Computer Science Center and Information Services, which provides computing and telecommunications to the teachers and students at Clark College. The college also established the Mary Kenneth Keller Computer Science Scholarship in her honor. The problem is that she was a one-woman department chair. Like, yeah. she was the whole computer science department so when she went to retire because she was having breast cancer surgery it was really hard to find a new head for this program they said hey can you give us like a five-year plan and she pretty much laughed in their face she said all the equipment we have here didn't exist five years ago and it'll probably be obsolete in another five right so how can i give you a five-year plan of what to do with this department the woman the woman worked to make sure college women could compute she fought for curriculums in every high school to have computer classes. She worked with politicians. She worked with businesses. She worked with the church. She built computer programs everywhere that she looked. Schools, libraries, hospitals, businesses. While Mary was coming close to the end of her life, she had a computer by her bed in her nursing home. She really didn't want to die and oh. said that openly. She felt she had much more to do and was excited to see where computers were going, but said, my life is a continuing changing awareness of God's will for me. Her last words before she died were yes, yes. And Mary died shortly um, after the break of dawn on January 10th, 1985, at 71 years old. 71? She wasn't old enough. No. She could have kept going. It's oh, 1985. God. Mary, and this is obviously due to like complications with breast cancer, breast cancer yeah. surgery, old age. Um, Mary was a remarkable woman who took advantage of every opportunity that came her way. And she has the distinction of being an early advocate for computer science and just a really strong female visionary i and i thought she was incredible it was hard to find a lot of personal details Uh obviously being a nun unlike the catholic family in your story she (laughs) was very good-willed and didn't marry Mm -hmm. and didn't have kids so her entire life was dedicated to the children she was teaching and the computers that she was using as a tool to teach them that is so cool yeah i just like you know we always think of women as being so far removed from tech. Mm-hmm. And like here she is literally at the forefront of the biggest tech boom. Boom. Of our <laughs> the last couple generations, last hundred years. Yeah. Like that's crazy. She really had it. I, I couldn't believe it when I was reading it because I was first. I was like, oh, cool. A nun that took computer science classes. That's like, you know, <laughs> that's different. That's fun. Yeah. And then I was Spooky. like, yeah, like good for you. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, wait, no, she like developed code and like was yeah. teaching everybody. That She's like wild. a visionary for sure. She yeah. like got ahead of the game. Yeah. All right. Well, now we need to talk about these two ladies in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Wow. So it's very interesting to me that. The Catholic Church, you would think, is the main part of both of these stories. <laughs> and it's not. And it's just <laughs> not. A pope and a nun and a pope's daughter. I just think that's so interesting. And it's how, politics and science. Yeah, it is. And it's so interesting to me, too, that, like, I have been doing this now for so long, and I still judge women on 
their title or the first thing that comes up on Wikipedia. You yeah. know, and it's very interesting. Like, yeah, I just didn't expect either of these stories to be the, the way that they were. <laughs> no, like you're saying, hey, she's a villain who poisons people. Oh, she's a nun. Like, not, neither of us are expecting the end to the story no. to be what it was. Yeah. Um, I I liked that. Like, I wrote down like Catholicism was like a starting point for the stories, yeah. but it wasn't even like a a footstool. Like no, neither yeah. of them were, st- and that's kind of what you just said. But neither of them were standing on the footstool of Catholicism. It's just a part of their life. Yeah. Well, and it's also like I think that both of them were so open to like change and new ideas and like. I think about how Mary was like, we need to see where computers are going. Like the world is changing and like the Catholic church and me and you should not be standing still. We should be going with it. Like let's get on board, you know? And I feel like Lucrezia, she really found herself in her last marriage. I think when she stopped caring about like really pleasing her, like her dad and her brothers. And I think she's like, you know what? I am going to change up my life. I'm going to have affairs. I'm going to do what I want. And I felt like because she was more herself, then her last husband did fall in love with her. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just think that both stories were a really great uh, example of like why we need to be more open to change than we are personally and as a society. Well, I think the society, too, like in that regard, Mm -hmm. the Renaissance is very similar to the information age because you were coming out of a really religious Mm -hmm. era that was very closed off. Mm -hmm. And like in terms of the Renaissance, it happened because of the Black Death. People were like whoa, maybe we can't trust God for everything because, like, germs exist. So, like, maybe we should focus on science. And then from that, we got art and big thinking and the enlightenment. And then you're looking at the information age that is coming out of this very weird 80s, 90s attack drug users Mm -hmm. only, you know, never have sex until, you know, you get married, abstinence only. Like, this very crazy period where it's like, yeah, but actually, if we use the Internet, we can research that those things don't help. Imprisoning people for this doesn't help right. telling kids you know never ever have sex and or you'll have an std and die doesn't help mm-hmm. so they're kind of living on the tail end of these crazy religious eras yeah and they're both very well educated oh yeah which i thought was so interesting multilingual either language or computer language right which is a totally different way to speak yeah but they were just so different in like their personal lives and i was thinking a lot about how mary is really like I just saw her as such a solo figure throughout Mm. all of this and like doing all this stuff on her own and like probably just like, can I go a little bit further? Can I go a little bit further? Yeah, I can. I can do that. And Lucrezia for so long was just, she was, and she still is known as Aborgia, Aborgia, Aborgia. Mm -hmm. You know, she is so bogged down by this family and their reputation. And like, I just, She's a part of this group, and I feel like even though Mary is, like, you know, supposed to be a part of this, like, big group, the Catholic Church and the, and the you know, sisterhood and whatever, it's like she just escaped it. I don't know. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and they both, and, like, one was obviously married a bunch of times. and Lots of children, <laughs> 10 pregnancies or whatever, by, by the age of 39. And, yeah. Know, and one wasn't, like, I don't know. 
but both gone way too soon. Like yeah. their lives were cut short by things that we could prevent now. Yeah. That we couldn't prevent then. Yeah. And like thanks to the work that Mary was doing, you know, like let's recognize patterns. Yeah. Let a computer do it. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, we still can't do that with like black women giving birth. I don't Right. Yeah. What are we know? doing? <laughs> we know that they died higher. It's like, you know, of course, we could go into that, but but yeah, it's I feel like both of them are just like open to how the world could be different for them, you know. Yeah. For every, I don't know. I just and they're both so different from what you see on the surface and what their reputation might be. Absolutely. I don't know. Very interesting. That was fun. <laughs> I like that one. All right. Who would you like to toast this evening? I, I want to toast girls that are really into computers. Like, I love the, like, girls who know all the key commands mm. and, like, who can do coding and set up block coding and mm. are really good at video games. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's fun and cute and quirky and yeah. good for you. Cool. And Cheers. none did it first, ladies. <laughs> I'm going to toast women from shit families. Hell yeah. It's not your fault. And if you can make it out good on you. (laughs) Cheers. Yes. Cheers. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. So to get to the final point of why I'm enjoying this so much, it might take like a second. I'm going to go as quick as possible. Okay. The series Percy Jackson. (laughs) Is a wonderful book series for young adult readers. The author, Rick Riordan, a wonderful man who really cares about education. Mm -hmm. When his books got big, they started making movies. Mm -hmm. The movies were fucking shit. I heard that. And he had them canceled. And he wrote, um, like, letters out to schools and was like, don't read the book and then show the movie because it's terrible. So he didn't do the J.K. Rowling thing where he maintained control. Okay, whatever. He goes on with his career. He decides, I'm going to reach out and make sure other people's voices are heard. Mm-hmm. We don't just need Olympians from Greece. Like, there are gods from other cultures. So he gets unknown authors from other cultures to write. Like, he's Percy Jackson and the Olympians. So he might do so-and-so and the Norwegian gods. Ooh. So-and-so and the gods from Japan. So-and-so uh-huh. and the gods from Ethiopia. But he has an actual person from that culture write the books. And it says their name. And then, like, supported by Rick Riordan. Oh, cool. So he's doing that. Uh-huh. Now, finally, Disney got a hold of Percy Jackson. Oh, the rights to it? And they are making a show. And it comes out every Tuesday night. And they started with the first book. And they're on, like, episode six, and it's great. Really? It's great. Oh, that's good. That him and his happy. wife are the executive producers. They have final say on everything. I love that him and his wife are listed right next to each other on the credits. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this. This is what it was supposed to be the first time. A yep. cute teenage, like, Harry Potter-esque story where you've mm-hmm. got a hero and a villain and a problem. <laughs> And I just am so happy because I was so disappointed with the movies because the books were so good. It yeah. could have been a Harry Potter-esque phenomenon, yeah, it and was. it wasn't, Ugh. which was so sad. That's very upsetting. But I think weekly shows is the way to do books now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When There's you're d- too much meat in them. No, for- yeah, exactly. There's too much meat for a two-hour movie. Yeah. Like, I watched Dune the other day, and I was like, it was two and a half hours, and I was like, I still don't know what's going on. 
I tried so hard yeah. to focus. That's what was funny. Caroline was like, saw Dune, Timothy Chalamet, terrible actor. I'm better than him. And I was like, <laughs> well, I was like, I don't know about that. Because <laughs> so producer I, hates Timothy Chalamet. So I she's re- she's repeating her dad there. Okay. I have no idea. I think he's a great actor. I, also, I, I think he's very cute. So. I mean, he's like a, t- to me, he's like a Tom Holland. I like, it's like, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. you're good you're cute you're like a cute little boy i love you you know um okay so the new percy jackson series every tuesday night okay uh on disney plus perfect what do you got i'm going to recommend the barefoot contessa <laughs> of course you are i have been re-watching it from the beginning so because good. it's on max right now i think okay. it is Ina Garten is so charming and so cute, and her, her husband is a blast. I, I love everyone. I love everyone involved, and it's like the premises of each episode are like. I have a friend who has a her pregnant daughter is coming into town, and she wants to surprise her mother with a basket for brunch. How good is that? And I, and like she just makes this basket with orange marmalade, and I'm like, and she makes you really think. Like I could do that. Like, yeah, I could make that date nut loaf and spread some homemade marmalade on it. Like, and I just, and then it's so funny because she's also like, some episodes are like, I'm writing a blog about herbs, you know, like, let's see what we can cook up in the kitchen with lots of fresh herbs. Mm. And then she'll, when she's doing a blog post episode, she'll make the dish, take a horrendous photo on like a digital camera <laughs> from 2004. Perfect. And like it. I have to show you the picture I took of Ina Garten taking a picture because my picture of her taking a picture is better than anything. <laughs> anything that she that's has done ever happened. It's so funny. So, but it's so good and it's heartwarming and it's relaxing. And there was one where it was like her and Jeffrey's anniversary and she spends all day cooking this meal. And he spent all day setting up a tent outside in the backyard. I was like, this is the difference between men and women. <laughs> You put up a pop-up tent, sir, in one now, full day. It was very cute. <laughs> he did put a lot of work into it, but he's apparently had to buy the tent. Anyways. Okay. Ina Garner doesn't have a tent. Come on. Come on. The, the show. The, the show doesn't have a tent. <laughs> the show. The show that probably has a tent for all of the filmographers to be under <laughs> While they're filming. Well, I loved it, too, because there's one episode. They just picked it up and moved yeah. it. <laughs> I loved it, too. There's one episode where one of her friends was like, Ina told me to make, like, this for, you know, dessert, and I messed it up. So now I'm – it was a meringue, actually. He's like, I burnt the meringue, so now I'm just going to go buy some. And then he was like, hi, do you have fresh meringues? And she's like, yes, we do. And she gives him the bed, and he goes, thanks. And he leaves, and she goes, you have to pay for those. <laughs> Why not cut it out? I can't get enough. I can't. It's like, it's my show that I watch. Like, I watch like an episode before, like, I start cooking dinner. Like, Mm -hmm. because it gets Mm -hmm. me in the mood to cook. It's relaxing. I love her. I love, I do love her and her show. Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you all for listening to this season. All requests. We can't wait to see you next season. It's going to be a blast. And if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. And if you'd like, you can join our Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can hang out with us more, learn more about our interests like the Barefoot Contessa and (laughs) just support the show and help us pay for all these goddamn cocktail ingredients. (laughs) So we love you and we want you to never forget 
that well-behaved women look exactly like you think they would. Yeah, exactly. And they rarely make history. story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye